1: This morning, we are going to uh, pause for a moment. You know, we've been, over the course of this season, we've been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, uh, but we're going to pause that now for our services uh, today uh, and then through Holy Week uh, and on Easter Sunday. So we're going to go into the narrative of Jesus' last week, uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem today, his crucifixion, his last meal with his disciples on Monday, Thursday, his crucifixion on Good Friday, and then ultimately his resurrection. And so, uh, in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21. It's interesting to note that if you've been with us over the course of our series in Nehemiah, you know that 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 book is about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after exile. Well, now those same walls, those same gates that were rebuilt by Nehemiah, open themselves to receive Jesus as he rides in uh, amid shouts of Hosanna. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word?
0: Our reading today is Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love.
1: You can be seated. Well, on November 4th of 2016, there was a scene in the streets of Chicago that generations of Chicago natives had waited a long time for. The streets of Chicago on November 4th were filled, flooded with over 5 million people who came out to watch a parade. Five million people. It was the seventh largest gathering uh, of human beings in one place in recorded history. Uh, Narrowly edging out, interestingly enough, a Rod Stewart concert in Brazil that had (laughs) 3.5 million people. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Five million people flooded the streets of Chicago. One man in an interview with the uh, Chicago Tribune said, this party has been a long time coming, 108 years to be exact. The streets were filled with joy. Uh, tears were found on the faces of young and old alike. And at the center of the parade were a bunch of relatively young men wearing odd white and blue striped shirts, pouring champagne and celebrating. If you were uh, to just drop in on Chicago, if you happened to just be there on business that day and saw five million people out there around these, this little group of people, one question you might want to ask is, who is this? What's going on? What is so important about these people? And I'm sure 5 million or so people would have been glad to tell you uh, that this was the first Cubs World Series in 108 years. And so this is why they came out uh, to celebrate like this. Who is this? You know, a similar scene uh, shows up in our reading from the scriptures today in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the numbers of people there. We don't think it was 5 million. Not that many people lived in Jerusalem. Uh, But we do know from from Matthew, he tells us that the whole city was stirred up. So however many people were there, the whole city is focused on essentially a parade. Somebody coming in, you know, if we think the Chicago Cubs have waited a long time, 108 years for, for a championship. The people of Jerusalem had been waiting for a very, very long time for what some believed was happening on this day as Jesus rode into the city. They had been at least waiting about 600 years since their exile when they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. In some other ways, they've been waiting since David, their greatest king, left the throne and their nation began its decline. So in some ways, they've been waiting for thousands of years. In still other ways, the people of God have been waiting since the Garden of Eden when our first parents, Adam and Eve, were uh, sinned against God and were kicked out of the garden, and God promised them that one day the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, would crush the head of evil. They'd been waiting for this day when someone would come as the true king, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And so in this scene, as, as Jesus rides in, and the whole city is stirred up, the people are asking the same question uh, that you might have asked in Chicago. Who is this? Who is the person at the center of all of this? Who is Jesus? Friends, there is no more important question that you can ask in your life uh, than who is this? Who is Jesus? If you're investigating Christianity and you wonder what it's all about, there's all sorts of other questions that fill our minds, right? We might think about questions around ethics. We might think about questions around creation or evolution. We might think of questions around uh, the historical nature of all the facts in the Bible. But all of that is downstream from one central question. Who is Jesus? Who was the man who lived and who died in Israel about 2,000 years ago? It's the central question that's occupied the Christian church for 2,000 years exploring and discovering more and more of who Jesus is and what he means for us in our time and in our place. And in this well-known scene, the scene of the triumphal entry of Jesus, we see two aspects of who Jesus is, that if we really want to know him, we have to keep both of these in our view, that he comes both as a conquering king and as a humble servant, that he's both of those things at once. The author of Revelation describes Jesus in his vision as both a lion and a lamb. Lion-like power and might and authority combined with lamb-like gentleness and humility and service. Martin Luther described this as the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. That both are true of Jesus. The Jesus who wears a crown is the same Jesus that goes to the cross. And if you really want to know him, Uh, you have to see uh, who he is in these two ways because ultimately only somebody who who holds both of these things together can be the savior of the world. One who's both powerful enough to undo the mess that we've made for ourselves and one who's gentle and loving enough to take our burdens onto himself and to walk that road. And so first, uh, this story shows us Jesus as a conquering king This scene is so full of Old Testament allusions. It's rich. The author, Matthew, is painting a picture. And for his paintbrushes, he's using scenes and lines and prophecies from the Old Testament to paint his picture of who Jesus is. The first Old Testament scene that Matthew calls on to explain what's happening here, we see in verse 9, They brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. There's only one other time in the Bible that someone gets this type of response from a crowd where the people lay down their cloaks before him on the path so that he never has to step on the ground, essentially using their own clothes to roll out the red carpet. And it's a a rather obscure scene in 2 Kings chapter 9. It's the story of the ascension of a king of Israel named Jehu. Jehu lived at a very, very difficult time in Israel's history. They They had been under the rule of a king named Ahab, who nearly every time he's mentioned in the Old Testament, the word wicked is used with him. And so, if, that, if, if your biography can't be written without the word wicked attached to it, uh, things have not gone well. And so, Ahab ruled over Israel, and Ahab married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel uh, was not an Israelite woman. She was a Phoenician who, with her, brought her own gods. And so, under uh, this duo of Ahab and Jezebel, the people of Israel languished in every conceivable way. They were led astray into idolatry. The the worship of the Canaanite god Baal began to replace the worship of Yahweh. The poor suffered under them as the rich got richer off the land while they uh, pushed the poor down. And so Ahab and Jezebel led God's people further and further away from their God. By this time, by the time that Jehu becomes king, uh, Ahab has died and now his son is king, but Jezebel really is the one ruling over the kingdom from behind the scenes. And so uh, members of the, uh, the school of the prophets under Elisha go and they anoint Jehu to be the new king. And Jehu has one job. It's to get up and to go and to kill all of Ahab's descendants and Jezebel to deliver God's people uh, from this tyrannical and idolatrous reign. And when Jehu gets up, And starts to move towards Jezreel, the capital city. The people come around him and lay down their cloaks for him to walk on. What does that mean? Well, it was a dangerous thing to be anointed king when there already was a king. Right? To say that I'm the new king when there already was a king and this uh, evil queen lurking behind him. And so this is all of the people saying, Jehu, you're our king. We're behind your agenda. We back you and we don't back Jezebel. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, picking up on that same scene, the people throw down their cloaks in front of him, ushering in his way, rolling out the red carpet. This is the crowd's way of saying, Jesus, we recognize you as our king, that you are a king like Jehu who's come to throw down the evil that rules over us, that's come to free us from our oppression." has come to set everything right. Jesus, you're the king, and we're laying down our cloaks. We're laying down our palms before you. Now, what becomes clear uh, in this story and as the story goes on is that the people of Israel who welcome Jesus as the one who will throw down their enemies do not yet have any clue who their enemies really are. Now, they believe, as you would have if you were living in Jerusalem, that the enemies of God and the enemies of his people were the Romans. It was the Romans who ruled over them. It was the Romans who had them essentially uh, prisoners in their own city, exhorted under high taxes. They may have had some sense that their own religious institutions had become corrupt, but when they welcomed a king and were welcoming him to overthrow their enemies, the assumption was that he was coming to overthrow the bad guys so that they could be free, so that God's people could be vindicated. And yet what becomes clear as Jesus goes about his work, and if you've been paying attention, it goes throughout Jesus' ministry, is that the real enemy of his people is not on the outside, but on the inside. Right? No matter what enemies we face in our lives outside of us, no matter what forces may come against us to oppress us, no matter what governments we may find ourselves living under, or the people of the world find themselves living under, That the ultimate enemy is not a problem out there to be solved, but it's a problem in here. The problems of sin and evil and death. The powers of greed and idolatry and adultery and lust and addiction. All those things that rule us from inside that we can't seem to become free of. Right? Those are the enemies that Jesus came first to deal with. You know, when Jehu, it's a a fascinating story, is Jehu came in uh, to Jezreel to be the new king. The first thing he did was he killed the sons of Ahab, the the king and and the next king. And then Jezebel comes to him from the palace and she looks down on him, made up like a queen. And Jehu rides up and he looks up to her and her window in the palace. And he just says this, he says, who in there is with me? And two of her attendants, two of her servants, throw her out of the window. uh, Down to her death. Right? So so when when the people of Israel welcomed Jesus as the king, maybe they thought that he was going to do something like that with Caesar or with Herod. But instead, and the reason I think ultimately that the crowds could not tolerate the kingship of Jesus, is that he said that what rules over you is not some Jezebel out there that has to get thrown out. But there's something inside of you that has to get thrown down. It's not an external queen. It's your own pride. It's your own arrogance. It's your own commitment to rule your own life that ultimately has to get chunked out of a window and plummet to its death because your life can't bear two kings or two queens. That Jesus comes as the king to overthrow all of us who would be kings and queens of our own life. The other Old Testament allusion here speaks to how Jesus' kingship works. If you look at verse 5, we'll start in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The kind of kingship that Jesus brings is a kingship that's marked not by power, not by an overthrow, uh, by force of those who oppose him, but it's a kingdom that comes by gentleness and humility. The passage uh, that's quoted here is Zechariah chapter 9. And the image that Zechariah paints of Israel's Messiah is that he will come riding on the back of a donkey. Now, what does Zechariah mean by that? You see, when the kings of the ancient world rode out to bring their kingdoms, they rode on war horses. They rode in chariots. They rode on the back of the most impressive horse in their kingdom, yeah. decked out in outfit and outfitted and armored for battle because they came to, to kill their enemies and to bring them underneath them in subjugation. And so when Zechariah says that the true king is going to come riding on a donkey, He's saying that this king is going to come, but he's not going to come on a war horse. He's going to come on a gentle animal. right? There has never been and likely never will be someone who's been intimidated by a donkey. right? I, do not, I don't like horses. I don't enjoy riding on horses. Uh, horses freak me out. I don't know why. <laughs> but if I'm at a petting zoo, I am not scared of a donkey. Uh, I can ride a donkey. I've put my two-year-old on a donkey. Right? A donkey is not an intimidating animal. A donkey, both then and now, was an everyday animal. It was an animal that people were used to working with. They were used to having them in their homes. They were used to hitching their plow to them. It was the everyday animal of a farmer. And so when Jesus comes riding on the back of a donkey, he, as Zechariah said he would, is saying, I'm bringing a real kingdom, but I'm not bringing it in the way that you're used to. I'm not coming to throw down the false kings. I'm coming and looking for voluntary service for those who lay down their life in recognition of my kingdom. I'm coming not to demand service, but to give service. I'm coming uh, as one who comes to serve. You know, later on uh, in this week, Jesus will be before Pilate, uh, the ruler under Rome uh, of this region. And Pilate's going to ask him, he says, Jesus, are you king? Right? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom isn't concerned with this world. Right? It doesn't mean that he's some kind of heavenly king, right? that is only concerned with things like prayer and worship and love. No, because what does he say at his resurrection? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, this earth is mine. It belongs to me, every one of you, every inch of it, every bit of it. But I don't claim it in the same way that the kings of this world claim it. I don't claim it by fear or intimidation or coercion. I claim it uh, by love. Because Jesus not only comes as a conquering king, he also comes to us as a suffering servant. Right? Yes, he's a king. But whatever kind of king he is, he's the kind of king who has to borrow a donkey to come into his kingdom. Right? This story is so full of, of images of Jesus' both power and his weakness. Right? His power is seen when he's able to say to his disciples, go to this address and look and you'll find a donkey and tell them I need it. Yeah. Tell them the Lord needs it. Right, this is a sign of power. It's a sign of lordship. But his weakness is in the fact that he's a king that needs to borrow a donkey. And throughout the course of this week, we're going to see this. Jesus has nothing to his name. He has to borrow a donkey to ride in on. He has to borrow a room in order to celebrate uh, his final meal with his friends at the Passover. And then ultimately, he's even going to need to borrow a grave for his body to be laid in after his crucifixion. Jesus came possessing nothing, owning nothing. He never amassed a fortune. He never amassed an army. He comes into Jerusalem almost as a lamb to the slaughter, possessing no way to defend himself, coming not as a king in the way that we're used to. And yet the people on this day laid down themselves. They lay down their praise. They lay down their lives, welcoming this servant king who comes. Friends, Jesus presents himself to each and every one of us in the same way that he presented himself in Jerusalem that day. He comes to each of our hearts as both king and servant. And as the crowd in Jerusalem that day, uh, each of us has to respond to Jesus. Right? Jesus uh, could have lived his life. Content to be kind of a religious teacher out in the the sticks, which is where he did most of his ministry. He was from from the middle of nowhere in Nazareth. He conducted most of his ministry in and around Galilee. But instead, he, in a posture of weakness, rides into Jerusalem, the center of the nation, and says, I'm here to be your king. From this scene on, one of two things were going to happen to Jesus. He was either going to be worshipped and crowned as king, and adored as their true king and Messiah, or he was going to be crucified. He was going to be viewed as a false king, one that the religious leaders of Israel and the political leaders of Rome could not tolerate. And for each of us, he puts us in that same position. We may be able to go on in our lives for some time thinking things like, oh, well, Jesus is a good religious teacher. He offers helpful things to me in my life. I, I like some of the things that he says about loving your enemies and." and being gentle, but I don't have to believe this the the hard-to-believe parts about Him being God in the flesh, about Him working miracles, about what we're going to celebrate next week, His resurrection from the dead. But Jesus ultimately won't allow us for long to stay in that one-foot-in, one-foot-out kind of posture. That He comes as King, and He comes as servant, and He demands a response out of us. Is he our Lord? Is he our King? Is he who he said he is? Or do we not believe that? John Newton, uh, the great uh, hymn writer of the 18th century, wrote Amazing Grace, says this about this chapter. He says, Happy are these, the king's subjects, who dwell under his shadow. He rules them not with that rod of iron by which he bruises and breaks the power of his enemies. But with his golden scepter of love, he reigns by his own right and by their full and free consent in their hearts. He reigns upon a throne of grace to which they have at all times access and from where they shall receive in answer to their prayers, mercy and peace, the pardon of all their sins, grace to help in every time of need and a renewed uh, supply answerable to all their wants, cares, services and conflicts. Happy are his subjects, who come under the reign of his grace, who know his love, who know his service. So how do we respond to Jesus the King? Well, there's something that we have to let go of and lay down, and then something that has to raise up. The first, the thing that has to lay down. Notice what happens as Jesus comes in. The people take off their cloaks and lay them at his feet as a sign of their, of their love as a sign of their worship, as a sign of them laying down their own stuff, their own identity, their own wealth, their own pride at his feet. This is a beautiful picture of what the Bible describes as repentance. Repentance simply means taking all of those things about yourself, not just the sinful bad things that you don't like about yourself, but even those things about yourself that you're tempted to take pride in. Maybe it's your wealth, Maybe it's your righteousness and your good deeds. Maybe it's your ethnicity. Maybe it's your political party. Maybe it's the things all those things about yourself that all human beings are prone to look at and say, because of these things, I'm a good person who has worth. Repentance means that we lay all of that down at the feet of Jesus and say, all of those things that I've taken pride in, all of those things that I've clung to to tell me that I'm better than other people, that I'm somehow worthy of God's love and his grace, we lay those down at his feet and say the only thing that matters isn't me, it's not my identity, it's not my pride, it's not who I think I am. It's not that I think I'm a somebody, but it's laying all that at Jesus' feet and saying, Jesus, you alone are king. You alone are everything. So that's what we have to lay down is our pride and all the things that we've taken pride in and the thing that has to rise up out of us is the same thing that rose up in the crowd this day. The cry, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, the second century uh, church father, Jerome, says that Hosanna in the highest, you know, we've said Hosanna means God save," And he believed that in the highest meant God saved the entire world. Save absolutely everything. Don't just save these people in Jerusalem this day that are crying out. This is a cry not just for the Israelites to be saved from Rome, but God save in the depths, God save in the heights, God save as far to the east and to the west. God save the whole entire world, the earth and the heavens together. God save everything. Hosanna. Highest, highest salvation. And it's rooted in this prayer, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son of David was, of course, the title that Jesus bore as the true King of Israel, the son of their greatest King David. In the cry, Hosanna, we said it's a prayer, but it comes to also mean uh, kind of a praise, right? uh, our, Our friends across the pond in England still have a version of this when they say, God save the Queen, right? It's a prayer, right? God take care of our monarch. Uh, But it's also also an exclamation, right? A sign of loyalty to the king. And so when they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, it's saying, Jesus, praise you. But also, God, save this king. God, protect. God, nurture. God, save the son of David. And of course, did God answer their prayer that God would save Jesus? Well, for a long time, uh, as we're going to celebrate this week, it doesn't look like it. Right, it looks like God uh, didn't hear this prayer because from, everyone, uh, from every external view, it looks like Jesus is abandoned. Right, it looks like G- God doesn't even answer Jesus' own prayer when in the garden he says, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Right, It looks like God has not saved his king, that he's abandoned him to death, abandoned him to shame. But does God ultimately save the son of David? He does. He does when he raises him on the third day. He doesn't save him from death, but he saves him through death. And through that, he offers salvation to every one of us. Right? It looked for a moment uh, like God had not saved his own son, That God had in fact abandoned his son. And because of that, we can know that he always answers our prayer. Hosanna, God save us. Not because of us, not because of our goodness or our righteousness, but save us because of Jesus. Save us because Jesus took the fullness of sin's guilt and shame on himself. He took the weight of death and its horror on himself. Therefore, you can save us. To the depths of us, to the worst parts of us, to the highest and deepest parts of this world. Jesus, bring your salvation. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we admit that there's so many things that we cling to in our lives, that we believe make us better than other people, that are sources of pride and arrogant boasting in our own hearts. There's even things, if we're honest, that we think justify us before you, our right beliefs, our thoughts, our uh, successes and accomplishments in this life, even our own moral goodness. Lord Jesus, like the cloaks that lined the streets of Jerusalem that day, help us to lay those things down at your feet. Lord Jesus, uh, you come to us today and each day as our rightful king, as our conquering king, but also as our servant, as the lamb who was slain, as the one uh, who gave his life for the life of the world. Lord Jesus, today, whether it's for the very first time or for the hundredth time in our lives, Lord, help us to lay down everything that we previously thought dear, to lay down our sin at your feet, and to take your mercy uh, on ourselves again like a cloak. Lord, help us to find uh, our only hope of salvation in Jesus alone. Lord, help us to cling to you, our King and our servant. Hosanna. Lord, save us. Save our world. And it's in our King Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.